because the world was too complicated. On certain groundlessness. I think the honest answer is we don't know. Navigating dizziness. Together. Welcome to the next episode. Well, I'm Sergio. I'm Ruth. I'm Lil. <laughs> to this, let's say, fourth episode. Yes, fourth. you're right. <laughs> to the fourth episode. We are here already, Sergio. <laughs> 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 we will think about control, losing control, regaining control, getting out of it again. Well, sometimes we like it, right? The core condition here seems to be being able to give or relinquish control and then being certain to get it back again. Just like when jumping in the air, we need the certainty that we will get our feet back to the ground again. And in this crisis-ridden world, on our planet spinning into a climate emergency, the belief in a firm foothold, in a safe ground, becomes difficult. Alice Pechriegel. Also a university professor in philosophy, so I like this idea of dizziness because it haunts me all the time <laughs> when I don't know where to go first. The first thing is to accept that it's out of control, uh, but that we we need to, to get control over the situation. We can uh, work on different levels to create new models of understanding, but also spreading this knowledge and this activism. Today we are also observers to yet another war raging in Europe. We follow it on the news, on TV, on live ticker banners, on screens, on social media. We can see we are being manipulated and we get dizzy from the different sources. On one side we have Putin's propaganda machine, on the other also European, US and Ukrainian military interests drive what we can and will read about the world. Sergio, did you know that one of Putin's main advisors is coming from a theater background? Yes, that's Vladislav Surkov. British documentarist Adam Curtis talks of him. He's normally thought of as Putin's Rasputin. It's interesting that he has this background. No question that much of Russian propaganda is so theatrical and ceremonial. Although it sits well with the imperial legacy that obviously was not erased by the Soviet Revolution. This means all of this is staged? But also Zelensky has an interesting background. He and his aides have all a background in acting and TV. That is a manipulative medium par excellence. In his speeches, we can see he knows his business. He engages emotionally with the viewers and with the crowds. These speeches he holds in front of every parliament and the UN, where he reflects the Ukrainian war within the context of their own historical tragedies. Well, this makes me think of propaganda, and propaganda initially was not a negative term. It comes from the Latin propagare, which means to set forward, to extend, to spread and to increase, but not to manipulate. This modern political sense of propaganda as a dissemination of information to manipulate dates back to World War I. And this implying a bias or deliberately misleading just came at that time. In times of war, it becomes more difficult to discriminate what is intended to emotionalize and thus motion me or a population into a certain direction. Emotion in war is crucial and drives us to certain actions or inaction. For Clausewitz, the great theoretician and soldier, 
Emotion or passion is one of the key ingredients of warfare, together with reason and chance. As the saying goes, the first victim of war is truth. Facts and emotion have a very specific function in relation to warfare. They stage the war, and thus they also spread dizziness and confusion, even though mostly they mean to deliver a clear message. Yes, in a way, Zelensky is struggling to shake off amnesia and indifference from his audience. It might be the only way to engage, to receive the support Ukraine needs. Yeah, let's stay with this confusion that is part of the war. And uh, I would like to welcome Michael Butter. Michael, what do you think about the war in Ukraine? Yeah, the war isn't real. Yeah, I read this this morning. Michael Butter is an expert in conspiracy theories. As such, conspiracy theories are a perfect tool for creating dizziness. So we are asking to clarify these dynamics. Generally speaking, we know that people spread conspiracy theories to make money. Sometimes real believers, sometimes just as fake news. And we, of course, know that conspiracy theories are employed by politicians, very often populist or authoritarian politicians, in order to promote their goals. And sometimes these people genuinely believe in the conspiracy theories, sometimes they don't. If they don't believe in them, then this would be intentional disinformation, this would be fake news. What about Putin and the way he is justifying his war in Ukraine? Is that propaganda or the spreading of conspiracy theories? In other words, does he believe in the reasons he is giving for his invasion? With Putin, um, I'm not that familiar. I don't know. And actually, I wouldn't know what's wor- what would be worse. Um, is this just pure cynicism or genuine belief? Seems that the people who planned that really thought that they would be welcomed by most of the Ukrainian population. So that would, in a way, um, speak in favor of maybe Putin even generally be, gen, uh, genuinely believing that uh, Ukraine was in the, th- in the hands of a group of drug addict uh, neo-Nazis uh, who were uh, subduing the people. On, at the same time, this sounds so absurd that it's um, very difficult to imagine that somebody like Putin really believes that. So um, honestly, we don't know. Okay, coming back to our overarching topic, how do you see conspiracy theories in relation to dizziness? There will always be real conspiracies. I mean, they're usually much smaller in scale than what conspiracy theorists imagine, fewer people involved, and usually something goes wrong at some point. Uh, But uh, of course, um, real conspiracies have always existed, and very often they have been accompanied, especially in the past decades, by... um, Uh, disinformation campaigns meant to produce dissonance, meant to uh, uh, produce confusion. And that is, and that uh, on the other hand, of course, we do have conspiracy theories where plots are imagined. And one reason I think, and you captured that quite correctly, I would say, why people are drawn to conspiracy theories is that they are a way to cope with dizziness. We know from the substantial body of psychological research on conspiracy theories that um, in the Western world, in, in the present, uh, One group of people that is particularly drawn to conspiracy theories are um, people who have a problem with ambiguity and uncertainty. And this is something I think that is very closely related to dizziness. So people who want straight, clear answers, 
are people who are drawn to conspiracy. It seems that conspiracy theories create an illusion of order and therefore blame the chaos that was created before by political opponents, imperialism, colonialism, for instance. And going back to what we were talking about with Ursula Pruch before in the former episode, there seems to be two different paths to populism, total chaos or chaos and order, like in Brazil with Bolsonaro, and even more obviously with Donald Trump in the USA and the way he orchestrated the chaos around January 6th. Yeah, man, I think chaos and order go perfectly together because those who defend the order, and I mean, the military is strong in Argentina and Brazil, need a kind of chaos, especially when they are populists, so that they could be the savior of a rotten society. But why are people swayed by fake news or conspiracy theories in the first place? I mean, is it helpful to believe in conspiracy theories? Is this a psychological issue? Could it even be a strategy to fight dizziness? You said already that conspiracy theory is a way to fight dizziness. We could suspect that this belief has some beneficial aspects, at least to its believers. Most psychological research uh, would say that people are uh, looking for help in conspiracy theories, but that it doesn't usually work out. Um, but uh, in that uh, you kind of want to regain control, you want to do away with ambiguity, and to a certain degree conspiracy theories allow you to do that, but then uh, there are limits. We could say then that uh, they are a strategy to fight dizziness, but uh, the psychologists would argue it doesn't really work. Um, I'm more, I'm a bit skeptical about what the psychologists are saying. I think that for uh, for many people, conspiracy theories actually do work. That they make the world perfectly coherent and a kind of uh, not dizzy for them. Um, even though, of course, uh, this is something that I think we tend to ignore because we consider their beliefs so problematic that uh, we always try to find fault with something with, with them and uh, with what with whatever they are doing. But we certainly have better strategies. I'm, I'm all for the Enlightenment, <laughs> on certain levels. This is Dan Novi. But at the same time, it has sort of removed this, this idea. It, it, is, it has made everyone an expert and no one an expert. But at the same time, you know, we, we distrust expert opinion, and we distrust, a lot of people distrust scientific opinion. There's no, nothing to fill that in. From the perspective of people who don't believe in conspiracy theories, each conspiracy theory, of course, contains certain fictional elements. There are, of course, things that are factual, and then you add fictional elements to that. And this is, in a way, what makes the conspiracy theory so, um, so convincing at the end of the day. Uh, most people think that conspiracy theories are completely wrong, that everything that they're claiming is completely wrong. But that's not the case. It's far more complicated. What conspiracy theories do is that they uh, draw on statistics, on scholarly publications, on data all the time, but they take things out of context, they twist things, um, and what they do at the end of the day is, and I think this is very close to fiction, is that they produce an internal coherence. In a way, people who create conspiracy theories distort and dizzy facts and findings in order to give their emotional spectrum and their opinions a basis. But let's not forget, this is mostly about making profits, be it on social media or through other channels. Because ironically, 
One of the U.S. most infamous conspiracy theorists, Alex Jones, sells dietary supplements and makes a fortune. What's the role of social media in propagating conspiracy theories? People who were looking for conspiracy theories now had it easier as well because they just you just Google once and you find something. No matter what your search algorithm looks like, second page of your Google result list, uh, there will be something that will lead you to conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theorists, on the one, pride themselves on going against the mainstream, on believing something that other people don't believe. But at the same time, nobody wants to be entirely alone in their beliefs. So before the internet, when you were the only person in your street, maybe uh, in your neighborhood, believing in a certain conspiracy theory, you would probably stop at some point because your neighbors would all tell you there's nothing to it and you would like to be, uh, want to be like them. Um, these days, no matter what people in real life tell you, when you go online, you will always find people who actually confirm your beliefs. And you can't tell me that my opinion is wrong because it's my opinion and I can find 800 YouTube videos that back me up. Uh, and yet at the same time, you know, people are willing to put their trust in all sorts of pseudo experts you know, we like influencers or yoga instructors. I mean, everyone is looking for that sort of expert that will sort of give them a sense of grounding. Like we use this thing, I, I feel grounded, right? And that is essentially when you're grounded, you're not dizzy anymore. So this would speak to the undizzying property of conspiracy theories. For a very long time, people thought that basically before the internet and before social media, there were hardly any conspiracy theories. So before the pandemic, very often in interviews, I was asked, um, why has the internet led to such an increase in, in the belief in conspiracy theories? And my answer was always, it hasn't. Can we conceive political dizziness without media amplifying it? Just as the invention of the sound amplifier helped Adolf Hitler reach the masses gathered before him. And we all know how much social media aids the contemporary brand of populists. They all did and do build on conspiracy theories. Well, obviously there were conspiracy theories in the Roman Empire and even before, but this might be known only to very serious historians. But let's look, for example, closer to us, maybe also to Latin America's history in the 50s, how did movements like Peronism, for instance, use conspiracy theories to instigate dizziness? When Eva Peron was dying, of course, I was not there, but the sources I have, also sources from diplomats, described the country in a complete tension, yeah? where uh, elites hoped that she would die and her descamisados, the, the adherents, hoped she would not die and Ray, and then it was interesting to see how conspiracy theories came up. So the, this vampire idea. So uh, it was told in Argentina that uh, mothers should not send their children to hospitals because the first lady is dying and she needs blood and she needs fresh blood from uh, small children to survive. And for me, these are the ingredients for, and I know, a future dizziness. We should not think about social media only when talking about conspiracy theories. What about mainstream media? We have Fox News, New York Times, CNN, BBC, and all the other outlets. Natasha Leonard. I'm a New York-based journalist and writer. I think all of these sort of mainstream publications and uh, networks, they almost 
they almost serve as like kind of an anti-dizziness mechanism. And I don't mean that necessarily in a good way. Um, you know, if you are a Fox viewer, if you are a MSNBC viewer or a New York Times reader, you have this kind of daily posit of an orientation of the world you're ex as you expect to see it and as you're going to discover about it. So then in that way, Fox and any right-wing news organ functions as a uh, kind of grounding machine um, rather than uh, any sort of possibility of, you know, a, a more liberatory dizziness or an escape from that sort of Weltanschauung. Um, but in the same way, so does the New York Times. Um, and I did, that doesn't mean I'm putting them on a kind of an ethical comparison. Like, obviously, I think Fox News is, um, you know, truly like a, a, a fascistic propaganda machine. I think there's a lot wrong with the New York Times. I wouldn't call it a fascistic propaganda machine, though. But it does also foreclose a lot of um, kind of more interesting dislocations and reorientations from the political now. You know, especially in the, the years of the Trump presidency, this uh, perpetual desire to both perform shock and then this sort of assert truthiness and fact check, fact check, fact check. Okay, so fact-checking is not a way to counter conspiracy theories. We all learned that the hard way in a pandemic, right? But the question is, how can we create an environment where we don't stop at the level of opinion, where facts can again become detached from personal emotion without belittling the feelings of people who think differently? What we can teach people is to... Um maybe slightly better accept ambiguity to make people aware of the fact that uh, the world is neither black or white in most cases and in many cases there is not just one correct answer to things and that political processes are extremely complicated that there's a multitude of actors involved and with overlapping partly contradictory agendas and that therefore it is very, very unlikely that uh, one small group of people is uh, pulling the strings and therefore uh, controlling everything. So an education that uh, teaches people to better accept ambiguity, therefore, I think would also be an education that uh, provides people with a certain amount of what we could maybe call social literacy. Understanding social reality and political culture for what it is, contradictory, messy, um, and not uh, part of a clear master plan that uh, a couple of people are pulling off. Okay then, politics is clearly a field where emotions and conspiracy theories play a major role, and so is war. But we are flooded with misinformation and conspiracy theories in other day-to-day -day aspects, Remember the pandemic and all the disinformation, misinformation and plain ignorance surrounding it. Yes, here we are again, control and the difficulty to accept the lack of knowledge and not knowing or not yet knowing. This leaves us feeling helpless. Chinese officials are advising 11 million people at the center of an outbreak of a new virus to stay where they are for the Lunar New Year holiday to avoid spreading it. People in Wuhan have been asked not to leave the city and outsiders have been told to stay away. More than 400 people have been infected with a, the coronavirus and nine outbreak. people have died. And, uh, it already has spread beyond China in small numbers, but most of those people seem to have been 
identified. We, we hope that most of them have been identified. Um, so it's not a pandemic. A pandemic is disease that's really spreading globally around the world, really unchecked spread around the world. And at this point, really the majority, the vast burden of disease is still in China. But to the question of whether or not this is controllable, I think the honest answer is we don't know. The first lockdown at the beginning of the pandemic nearly two years ago, a moment of fundamental uncertainty for all of us. And I'm, I would say we all had these experiences of dizziness back then. Uh, you were looking at the media, you were reading all of these reports and you couldn't quite make sense of that. How dangerous is that virus? What is safe to do? What is not safe to do? What will my life look like three days from now, three weeks from now, three months from now? Um, conspiracy theories provided answers to many people in that situation because um, they claimed from very early on in the pandemic, this is what's really happening. These are the people who are responsible. This is their agenda. And this is what this will lead to. And this is in a way a strategy then to do away with uncertainty, to cope with uh, dizziness. Question of control, we had it already. It's very important, I think, um, yeah. Uh, controlling by denegation by by negating the real threat the controlling is always controlling the anxiety and the 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 relation between anxiety and busyness for me is it's always more interesting so let's see why this this uh because in psychoanalytic terms we would say uh, control uh, zwang the the compulsionary control is uh is a kind of effect of the anxiety, of a heavy anxiety. So in psychosis, this is, uh, this is obsessive and total because anxiety is everywhere. And uh, everywhere you touch, it can, it can, the source of the anxiety can come up and invade your psychic space. So you have to be active all the time in order to control all these holes where anxiety sources can open up, you know? My anxiety is your dizziness. My anxiety is your dizziness. Your dizziness is your anxiety. My dizziness is your anxiety. This complexity of our world, of the dynamics that surround us, can make us anxious and dizzy, as documentary filmmaker Adam Curtis formulates. It's said that all attempts to change the world through revolution would always fail, because the world was too complicated for anyone to be able to predict the consequences of their actions. It came from engineers and scientists who were using computers to model the way the world behaved. The difference between the modus simulation and the advice modus is accurate. It will not match this data in time. The simulation would determine how long it took the signal. They saw the world as a series of complex systems. Populations of animals, flocks of birds, whole human societies, and even global weather patterns were all complex systems that you could recreate as models inside the computers. When the scientists did this, the computers began to reveal something they hadn't expected. One tiny change in their equations 
could have massive catastrophic consequences, which they could never have predicted. So complexity is often taken as an excuse not to address issues that are difficult, complicated or hurtful. Ran Holtzman. Uh, working on kind of uh, earth science, fluid mechanics, uh, the physics of earth science. Something that is really mind-blowing and impossible, even with all this crazy computing that goes today, it's, it's kind of too much, too complicated. And then my job is kind of to simplify, to say, oh, but uh, to, to get some of this molecular physics a large scale. And so what makes it complex is uh, the systems that the behavior what we're trying to uh, understand. Uh, instability it means that a small change to the state, to the equilibrium, in a sense, uh, to a state which is stable, will cause dramatic and sometimes catastrophic and also we say irreversible change. Already the pandemic and the lockdowns showed us that we can, in fact, change as a society. As this unexpected change of our plans, of our ways of being together, caused anxiety and dizziness. The shock and the dizziness between what I had lived before with the pandemic in Brazil, which was really strong since the beginning, which was March 2020, until I come to Europe, uh, uh, I, I was at home, yes. was one year and a half, something like that, you know. Gabriela Carniero da Cunha. I am a Brazilian artist. The pandemic was especially harsh in Brazil. Over there, the lockdown was voluntary and there was no support provided for those who wanted the safety of isolation. There was no mandatory lockdown imposed by Bolsonaro who thought, or at least proclaimed, that the virus was harmless. The situation was really serious. We had uh, 600,000 people dead. Uh, 4,000 people dying per day. So it was this time of being at home and a major, I don't know, the name is not sol solitude and not being lonely, but stuck, like stuck in your home, which makes everything much worse. And then I come to Europe it was like a jump in time, you know, like uh, like a space-time travel. I think one aspect is also because our government is not highly functional, <laughs> so there is no sort of there is no structure that will save us. The fact that we're Indonesians are not gonna save us. Grace Sambo. My friends call me Grace, and because I don't make art, they call me curator. Uh, I don't know how it will change, but <laughs> uh, people are, keep finding ways to be together in, in, in this kind of settings, like recent weddings, for example, because you're not allowed together, you know, so many restrictions if you're using public space. And if you're like sort of doing it in your house, then your neighbors can also complain about you. Not that there's anything legally can be done to you, but I think in where I live, it's scarier if your neighbor is angry at you than if the police are angry at you. Our government never um, encouraged people to protect themselves. The situation got so bad that it was impossible for you not to know someone that or was sick or was in hospital or actually died. 
we are uncovering more and more that the world is in fact a very uh, dizzy place and that we are all in a state of dizziness permanently. Anna Kim? I am a novelist. I'm very interested in the coming together of politics and of literature. If you have a pandemic, it's even more uh, dizzy-fying. And um, it is a continuous state, but there are always, I think maybe dizziness is a little bit, um, it goes in waves. So there are moments of clarity too. And um, these moments of clarity you can use to uh, uh, maybe um, understand the dizziness. I mean, this is also about understanding um, structures. It's about understanding um, uh, the, the workings of certain things. And in order to understand, you have to go through dizziness. You have to go through the state of not understanding, which is also dizziness. Trevor Pagelin. I'm an artist and you know I work out of New York and Berlin. Mentioned the theme of dizziness. I obviously can only contextualize that within the last two years of uncertainty on many levels, you know, uncertainty in terms of one's own body and one's relationship to the environment and how quickly that, that can change and how disconcerting that can be on one hand. And then scaling that up, the institutions that, that one works with, the um, economic circumstances that one finds them in, oneself in, and you can scale that up, obviously, then further to the idea of the future itself, you know, and yeah, uncertainty about the existence of the future. But dizziness is unpredictability. It's like a, it's because it has no content in a sense, and it's a swirl of content, uh, and we don't know what will come out from it. Ben Spatz. So looking at the forms of knowledge, what knowledge is, uh, and more and more I'm looking at that through a decolonial lens, uh, as well as queer and feminist approaches to knowledge. I think that uh, the, the worst futures are the ones in which ecological collapse leads to, um, as in many cases, it already is uh, and has, leads to a tightening and strengthening of very rigid violent systems of control. So it leads to intensification of borders. As the climate crisis intensifies, there's an obvious pathway in which they just create these gated communities, more and more gated. I mean, there already are gated communities, but the, the gates get bigger and more intense. In the longer term, obviously, I think about the climate emergency that we're in, which is becoming certainly where I am much more visceral. You know, I, my family's from California. I spend a lot of time there and, you know, the parts of the state have really become uninhabitable. My mother actually just moved from California back to upstate New York where she was living before and it was because she couldn't breathe. I think it's about mitigation on one hand, but then you find that on the personal level as well, like many people in my circles are constantly talking about where, where do we go, you know, where, where to live, you know, what, what is going to be possible in the near future. And so I think we are in the middle of this um, of this uh, really heavy uh, conflict, and uh, we do everything in order to to continue to live and to talk together and to to do our work. 
but we are we are in a horrible situation, wide world. So, uh, I think we have really big problems, and we do everything not uh, in order not to not uh, not to feel them all the time, because we we would also become crazy probably if we always <laughs> would feel it in the in the most massive way. It's threatening. It's really threatening what is happening and not happening. And you know that we need a really radical change. I think in this moment of that we are living, it's urgent that we feel dizzy, that we get out of this colonial vocabulary, that we dislocate ourselves to see the world from another perspective, go to see the world from the south, from the global south, try to look at capitalism from the global south and try to look to river from the global south try to listen to the to the spirits that are there yes i mean i guess like most um art institutions we feel right now that dizziness is one word to describe um where society stands right now Katrin Buchertrantov. I'm chief curator at Kunsthaus Graz, and we as an art institution have to question ourselves uh, critically um, where we stand and what, what, our, what our preaching actually means to ourselves. If we, if we show a lot of works that uh, deal with, with questions of um, yeah, climate responsibility, do we have a team? Yeah, we have one curator that is called um, Curator for Sustainable Activities. And she is um, she's really very hard to us if we do, if we, <laughs> if we do things wrong. Yeah. She's like our conscience. Uh, it's very good. She sort of asks us, is that necessary? Is it why do you do that? Is it conceptually interesting or because then of course we can do non-sustainable things. It's not as if art would always be sustainable. I think that would it would be so boring if it were like that. Yeah. But um, but we have to ask ourselves: Is it necessary for the concept, or is it interesting or important? Then of course we um, <laughs> we go overboard. Well, we have to ask ourselves if the gestures of researching, as well as of making, exhibiting, publishing art and also modes of creating or reaching out towards new and different balances that can also lead to the destructive. But lucky there are some indicators that this is being taken care of, or at least through some practitioners and institutions. We cannot spare ourselves the critical analysis of art's claim to meliorism or truth or transparency as we are controlling as artists what you see, hear, learn and feel and this interaction with the body. And I think that's important, which is you know, maybe where there's another really deep connection to this idea of, um, of dizziness, because it, you know, it's important that when I'm working, I'm, you know, I'm moving, I'm often moving around the room that I'm working in. I'm getting out of breath. I'm, I'm, losing my physical capacity to keep talking um, and that's all again part of what's going on you know it's not a it's not uh 
it's something that I embrace, I suppose, rather than thinking, oh, I wish I could do it in some perfect vacuum. I mean, the fact that I'm doing it in a body with, with, a, with a tongue and a mouth and breathing and that all of those things introduce elements of sort of um, glitch and, and error and uh, stumble, that's all really important to me because they actually those things actually feed feed the work itself. Tim Etchells. I'm a an artist, a performance maker, and a writer. Actually, we are going to go into one of his works. It's a collaboration with the the violinist Aisha Orasbayeva, a work from 2016 called Until the End. unspoken words that have never been spoken, unspoken words that have never been spoken, unspoken words that have never been spoken, unspoken words that have never been spoken. I feel very bad. I, I feel very bad. I feel very bad. I feel very bad. I feel bad. I feel very bad. I feel I feel very bad. I feel bad. I feel very bad. I feel bad. I feel very bad. I feel bad. I feel very bad. I feel very bad. I feel very bad. I feel 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 very bad. I feel bad. I feel very bad. I feel bad. I feel feel very bad. I feel bad. I feel very bad. I feel bad. You feel bad. You feel bad. You feel very bad. You feel bad. Feel very bad. You feel bad. I feel very bad. I feel bad. You feel very bad. You feel bad. You feel very 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 bad. You feel bad. You feel bad. You feel very bad. You feel bad. You feel very bad. Golden dust. Golden dust. Golden dust. Gold dust. Golden dust. Gold dust. Gold dust. Gold dust. Gold dust. Golden dust. Golden dust. Golden. Dust, golden dust, golden dust, gold 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 dust, in in view of the circumstances, in in view of the circumstances, 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 in view of the circumstances. I am more than 99% certain that this train exists. I am more than 99% certain that this train exists, that this train exists. I'm more than 99% certain that this train that exists. I am more than 99% certain that this train exists. Escher words, Escher words, Escher words, Escher words, Escher words, Escher around sound, around sound, around sound, around sound, around sound, surround sound, around 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 sound, I feel very bad, I feel very bad, I feel bad, I feel bad, I feel very bad, I feel bad, I feel very bad, I feel 
very bad. I feel bad, a kind of um, amnesia of the hands, a kind of amnesia of the hands, a kind of amnesia of the hands, of the hands, a kind of amnesia of the hands around sound, around sound, around sound, surround sound, surround sound, around sound, around sound, around sound, around sound, a kind of amnesia of the hands, 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 a kind of amnesia of the hands until the end, until the end, until the end, until the early hours, until the end, until the end, until the end, until the end, until the early hours, until the early hours, until the last moment, 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 until the end, 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 until the early hours, until the early hours, until the early hours, 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 until the end, until the end, until the last moment, 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 until the last moment. In this episode, we navigated through dizziness together with, in order of appearance, Alice Pechregel, Michael Butter, Ursula Prutsch, Dan Novi, Natasha Lennart, Yevdokia Romanova, Ran Holtzman, Gabriela Carnero da Cunha, Grace Sambo, Anna Kim, Trevor Paglin, Ben Spatz, Katrin Buchatrantov, Tim Etchels. This is Pottard by Ruth Anderwald, Leonhard Grond, and Sergio Edelstein. Spatial audio mix, Florian Grond. Recording and vocal support, Ethan Vincent. Production, Jeanne Drach, Oh Wow. Assistance, Laura Brechmann.
on certain groundlessness in the framework of navigating dizziness together, supported by the Austrian Science Fund's FWF Peak AR598, hosted by Central Focus Forschung at the University of Applied Arts, Vienna. My order is your dizziness. More soon.